This episode is brought to you by none other than the members of the Best of the Left podcast. For details on membership, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, The Onion Radio News, Countdown, Bill Moyers Journal, Counterspin, The Daily Show, and The Progressive. tell you about putting the Republicans in a tough spot. If you say to them, hey, listen, we're going to pass financial reform, we're going to get tough on the banks, and what we're going to do is say to the Republicans, you're either with us or you're with the bankers, okay? Now, it's not to get tough on them just for the sake of getting tough. It's not to make ourselves feel better, it's, and it shouldn't be punitive, okay? It's so that we can fix the system so that it doesn't blow up again, so they don't take these wild risks. And... I say, if you put them in that spot, they're going to make a mistake. Either, either they're going to buckle and vote with you, or they're going to make the mistake of being obviously on the side of the bankers and protecting Wall Street. And that's exactly the mistake Rush Limbaugh has made. And it's awesome. Listen to him suck up to the bankers and try to protect them from big, bad Obama. Clip number nine. And now Obama is taking further aim at the economy. Mr. Depression. That is what I am going to... He is now attacking uh, the banks all over again. And he's doing it because the polling data he has suggests that the public is still mad at Wall Street, still mad at banks, still mad at all these bonuses. So it's pure class envy. It's an attempt to revive his poll numbers. And in the process, he is taking yet another swing at capitalism and is totally taking this country toward depression. He's not cracking down on the banks, folks. He's raping them. <laughs> With his usual flair, right? But my guess is even Russia's audience is like, hmm, really? Raping the banks. Maybe this Obama's guy guy is not as bad as I thought he was. Okay, ain't nobody raping anybody. Okay, first of all, except the bankers who took all that taxpayer money, Rush, what happened? I thought you cared about the taxpayer money. They took it, right? And they didn't regulate anything. They didn't change any of their ways. They're still taking those risks, and they'll come back for more taxpayer money later. Now you want to protect them? You want to be on their side? Have at it, Hoss. Have at it. That's a great way to go. You see that, guys? Even if you're a conservative, Rush ain't on your side. He's on the side of the richest people in America. He's on the side of the bankers. If they didn't take our money, who cares? I want them to make money. I believe in capitalism. He say, tries to pretend that this is about capitalism. But in capitalism, you don't let them fix the rules so they can, they can take our money and gamble with it. That ain't capitalism. That's corporatism. And Rush loves it. And he loves that they screwed you over. So, hey, if you still like that and you want to give your money to uh, uh, more of the Wall Street guys, all right, keep listening to Rush. He'll lead you down that road. See how you like it. Save some things. You know you've only got one. Change your ways while you're young. CEO doesn't have time for this crap. It's the Onion Radio News. I'm Doyle Redland. Kenneth Whitting, the extremely busy CEO of Nortec, doesn't have time for this crap, according to a statement issued through his secretary. Mr. Whitting, who's far too busy to tell you this himself, would like all of you to know that you're wasting his valuable time. Asked when Whitting will have time for this crap, his secretary glanced at his calendar and said it wasn't looking good. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News. Every 
finally tonight, as promised, a special comment on this President's Day, celebrating George Washington and the founding fathers he represents, and Abraham Lincoln and the emancipation he represents. And I think having now been one for 51 years, I am permitted to say I believe prejudice and discrimination still sit, defeated, dormant, or virulent, somewhere in the soul of each white man in this country. 63 years after Jackie Robinson and 56 after Brown v. Board of Education and 46 after the Civil Rights Act and a year and a half after the presidential election, this is not a popular thing to say. This is also not a thing that should be true, even as a vestige of our sad past on this topic. But it is. Discrimination is still all around us in so many ways, openly redirected towards immigrants who are doing nothing more than following the path that brought my recent ancestors here and probably yours too or focused on gays predicated on a mumbo-jumbo of biblical misinterpretations, or leeching out still against black people in things like the Tea Party movement. I think the progress we have made in the last 60 years in this country has been measurable and good, but I think discrimination has been tamed, perhaps, not eradicated. For our society still emphasizes our differences as much as our similarities. We may be 63 years from Jackie Robinson, but we are not yet 63 days from a man going on national radio and telling us the President of the United States was elected only because of the color of his skin. Discrimination, I've always thought, is a perversion of one of the most necessary instincts of survival. As a child, put your hand on a red-hot stove and you'll quickly learn to discriminate against red-hot stoves. But if that age you're also told you need to beware of say, black people, and you will spend your life having to fight against wiring created in your brain for no reason other than to reflect someone else's prejudice. And it need not even be that related to trauma. The other night in the hospital, my father was telling me about seeing Satchel Paige pitch. At Yankee Stadium, this was. The time was about 1941, and the team was the New York Black Yankees, and my father shook his head in amazement as he told me this. It never occurred to me, he said, it never occurred to anybody I knew that he couldn't play for the other Yankees, my dad said. We just assumed he didn't want to, that none of them wanted to. These thoughts still linger in our lives, still actively passed to some of us by people who are not like my father, who never questioned their own upbringing or parents or school or world. That older, brutal, prejudiced with impunity world, which reappears somewhere every day like Brigadoon, sometimes with virulence, as in Don Imus's infamous remarks, sometimes with utter, arrogant, tone-deafness, as in John Mayer's Playboy interview, sometimes with a kind of poorly informed, benign phrase like Harry Reid's comment about dialect, sometimes with the lunk-headedness of surprise that nobody is screaming, mf or I want more iced tea at a Harlem restaurant. But it's still there. I'm not black, so I can't say for sure, but my guess is the reverse feeling still exists, too, with the same doubt and nagging distrust, only with the arrow pointing the opposite way. And I guess it's still there, too, among Hispanics and Asians and every other self-identifying group because this country, since the Civil War, has not only become ever increasingly great, not merely for dismantling the formalized racism of our first 200 years on this continent, but because we have been dismantling a million years of not fully trusting the guys in the next cave because they are somehow different. This all still lingers about us, all of us, whether we see it or not. And since it's no longer fashionable, indeed no longer acceptable, it oozes out around the edges, and usually those who speak it don't even realize that as good as their intention might be, as improved as their attitudes might be from where they used to be, or where their parents or grandparents used to be, or where America used to be, it's still racism. Thus it has become fashionable, sometimes psychologically necessary, that when some of us express it, we have to put it in code or dress it up or provide a rationalization to ourselves for it. That this has nothing to do with race or prejudice. The man's a socialist and he's bent on destroying the country and he was only elected by people who can't speak English or, or was it he was only elected by guilty whites? The rationalizations of the racists are too many and too contradictory for the rest of us to keep them straight. The whole of the anger at government movement is predicated on this. Times are tough. The future is confusing. The threat from those who would dismantle our way of life is real, as if we weren't to some extent doing it for them now. And the president is black, but you can't come out and say that's why you're scared. Say that, and in all but the lifeless fringes of our society, you are an outcast. And so this is where the euphemisms come in. 
Your taxes haven't gone up. The budget deficit is from the last administration's adventurer's war. Grandma is much more likely to be death paneled by your insurance company. And a socialist president would be the one who tried to buy as many voters as possible with stupid tax cuts. But facts don't matter when you're looking for an excuse to say you hate this president, but not because he's black. Anything you can say out loud without your family and friends bursting into laughter at you will do. And this is where those tea parties come in. I know I've taken a lot of heat for emphasizing a particular phrase which originated at a freerepublic.com rally a year ago this month, originated with a tea partier. And I know phrases like tea, clucks, clan are incendiary, and I know I use them in part because I am angry that it's so late a date we still have to bat back that racial uneasiness which has to envelop us all. And I know if I could only listen to Lincoln on this of all days about the better angels of our nature, I'd know that what we're seeing at the tea parties is, at its base, people who are afraid, terribly, painfully, cripplingly, blindingly afraid. But let me ask all of you who attend these things, how many black faces do you see at these events? How many Hispanics, Asians, gays? Where are these people? Surely there must be blacks who think they're being bled by taxation. Surely there must be Hispanics who think the government should have let the auto industry fail. Surely there must be people of all colors and creeds who believe in cultural literacy tests and speaking English. Where are they? Where are they? Do you suppose they agree with you, but they've just chosen to attend their own separate meetings, that they're not at your tea party because they have a tea party of their own to go to? Are you thinking like my father did about Satchel Paige and the black Yankees, that they want this? My father had an excuse for that. He was 12 years old. It was 1941. Are you of the tea party 12 years old? For you, is it 1941? You're scared and you're in a world that has changed in a million ways and the most obvious one of them is something unforeseeable not a decade ago, a black president. And yet you are also in a world inherited, installed by generations that knew only fear and brutality and prejudice and difference and suspicion. The generations have gone but the suspicion lingers on. Not all of our heritage is honorable. Not all the decisions of the founding fathers were noble. Not very many of the founding fathers were evolved enough to believe that black people were actually people. The Founding Fathers thought they were and fought hard to make sure they would always remain slaves. Fear is a terrible thing. So is prejudice, so is racism. And progress towards the removal of any evil produces an inevitable backlash. The Civil War was not followed by desegregation, but by Jim Crow and the Klan. The Civil Rights legislation of the 60s was not followed by peace, but by George Wallace and anti-busing overt racism. Why should the election of a black president be without a backlash? But recognize what this backlash is, and maybe you can free yourself of this movement built of inherited fears and of echoes of 1963 or 1873. Look at who is leading you and why, and look past the blustery self-justifications and see the fear, this unspoken, inchoate, unnecessary fear of those who are different. If you believe there is merit to your political argument, fine. But ask yourself, when you next go to a Tea Party rally or watch one on television or listen to a politician or a commentator praise these things or merely treat them as if it was just a coincidence that they are virtually segregated, ask yourself, where are the black faces? Who am I marching with? What are we afraid of? And if it really is only a president's policy and not his skin, ask yourself one final question. Why are you surrounded? by the largest crowd you will ever again see in your life that consists of nothing but people who look exactly like you. Look at you. You. Such There were hands in the air in Washington this week, but it wasn't a stick-up. 
The new Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission, appointed by Congress to find out how America got rolled, began hearings this week. These four are not the victims of one of the greatest bank heists in history. They're the perpetrators, bankers so sleek and crafty they got off with the loot in broad daylight and then sweet-talked the government into taxing us to pay it back. Watching that scene on the opening day of the hearings, it was hard enough to believe that almost a year has passed since Barack Obama raised his hand too, taking the oath of office to become our 44th president. Even harder to remember what America looked like before Obama, because we've not only been robbed of our money, we've been robbed of memory. Assaulted by what the Nobel laureate Chesley Milos described as a fantastic proliferation of mass media, we live in a time characterized by a refusal to remember. Inconvenient facts simply disappear down the memory hole, as in George Orwell's novel, 1984. President Obama now has made plenty of mistakes during his first year, and we've critiqued them frequently here on the Journal. But hardly anyone talks anymore about what happened in the years before Obama. He inherited from George W. Bush the biggest financial debacle since the Great Depression, along with two unpopular and costly wars and a dysfunctional and demoralized government. So it's important to remember those years, a time that has been characterized by the historian Thomas Frank as a low, dishonest decade. He's here to talk about them with me. Thomas Frank is editor of the recently relaunched Baffer magazine, a literary journal. He's a contributing editor of Harper's, a weekly columnist for the Wall Street Journal, and the author of One Market Under God, the best-selling What's the Matter with Kansas, and his latest bestseller, The Wrecking Crew, now out in paperback. Good to have you back. It's my pleasure, Bill. How is it that the people who are responsible for the mess that Obama inherited are getting away with demonizing him when he's only had less than a year to clean it up? Let me show you just a sample of right-wing commentators railing against the president. President Obama and the Democrats are destroying the U.S. economy. They are purposely doing it, I believe. This is a well-thought-out plan to collapse the economy as we know it. The president has, I think if you listen to what he says, a hatred for capitalism. Where do jobs come from? They don't come from the government. They come from the profit-seeking self-interest that, from what I hear and see, the president never misses an opportunity to smear in this guy is a coward. He does not have the gonads or the spine to even stand up and accept what he's doing. All of this is his doing. He cannot even proudly say, you should like this. You may not like it, but I'm telling you it's the best thing for you. It's the best thing for me. No, he knows it's a disaster. He has to slough this off on his previous or his predecessor, the previous administration. It's his stimulus. It's his record deficit spending. He quadrupled the debt in a year. You know, how many more times are Democrats going to say, oh, it's George Bush's fault? This is Obama's economy now. What goes through your mind as a historian when you watch that? Well, that's, that's, that is America for you. But, I mean, that is the sort of the, the demented logic of our politics is that now Obama's been president for a year. And he will come before the public in the fall, you know, having to defend all of this, all of these terrible things. But that's that's how our politics works in this country. But you called it demented. I mean, you know, demented means crazy, yeah. mad, mad well, and crazy well, enough the... to cause us to forget the world before Obama. I'll, I'll give you an example of what I mean. So I was um, uh, on a radio show the other day with a, uh, a Tea Party leader, you know, one of these protest leaders. And uh, he seemed like a good guy. But what he did say that struck me was he said he was really against uh, a monopoly, you know, and we're, we're laboring under all these monopolies, all this concentrated power here in America. And what we need to do is get back to free markets and then we can do away with that. And, and it was it was mind blowing because if you look back any further than the Obama administration since, I mean, 1980, in this country, we have been in the grip of, you know, of this pursuit of ever pure free markets. That's what American politics has been about. That's what has delivered this, you know, the awful circumstances that we find ourselves in today. And to think that that's what's missing, that's what we need to get back to. Uh, is, is more than nostalgia. What is that? Well, that's the disease of our time. That's, you know, that sort of instant forgetting. But what does it do to our politics when 
the very spokesman for what some people have called a decade of conservative failure. I mean, remember before Obama, they turned the budget surplus into a deficit. Mm -hmm. They took us to war on fraudulent pretenses. Mm -hmm. They borrowed money to fight it. They presided over a stalemate in Afghanistan. They trashed the Constitution. They presided over the weakest economy in decades. Compiled uh, for, for, not weak for everybody. No, no. But, but, <laughs> Some people did really well. Right. So, okay, they compiled the worst track record on jobs uh, in, in, in decades, and they ended up with the worst stock market in decades. I mean, it was yeah. a decade That's of right. conservative failure, and yet Obama's their villain. <laughs> well, uh, think of all the crises and the disasters that, that, you've, that you've described, and I would add to them things like the, you know, uh, what happened in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, and uh, 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 the, the, the Madoff scandal on Wall Street, and, you know, on and on and on, the Jack Abrams off scandal, the sort of, the, the whole sordid career of Tom DeLay, all of these things that we remember from the last decade, I mean, some of them that we're forgetting, like who remembers all the scandals over earmarking anymore? And who remembers all the scandals over Iraq reconstruction, all the, you know, disastrous, uh, you know, when we would hand it off to a private contractor to rebuild Iraq and it would, you know, of course it would fail. Uh, those things have all sort of been dwarfed by the economic disaster and the wreckage on Wall Street. But I would say to you that all of these things that we are describing here are of a piece and that they all flow from the same the same ideas and those ideas are the sort of conservative attitude towards government and conservative attitudes towards governance okay that government is a perversion government is a yeah this it's is a, there are government <laughs> government is a perversion and to to believe that the federal government can be operated you know with all of its programs can be operated well and and do things that are good for the, for the people is as you say is 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 a perversion and they look at someone like Barack Obama and it's it, and it makes them seethe because that's you know that's what he's trying to do what conservatism in this country is about is government failure Conservatives talk about government failure all the time, constantly, and conservatives, when they're in power, deliver government failure. Not merely from incompetence, you say, but from ideology, from and philosophy, from, from a and view of the And sometimes from design. From design. What do you mean? Not always from design, but often. The Department of Labor, for example, um, the conservatives, when they get in uh, in office, routinely stuff the Department of Labor full of uh, of ideological cranks and people that don't believe in the mission, and the result is that it, it doesn't it, they don't enforce anything. Towards the very end of the Bush era, the Department of Labor had been whittled down; it was a shell of its former self. And at the very end of the Bush administration, one of the government accountability. Uh, programs did a study of the Department of Labor and I'm smiling because it's kind of amusing it was like an old spy magazine prank they made up these horrendous labor violations around the country and phoned them in as complaints to the Department of Labor to see what they would do okay they responded to one out of ten of these you know we're like they called in and was like well we got we got uh, you know kids uh, working at a meat packing plant during school hours <laughs> you know can you can you gonna do anything about that no or you look at something like the Securities and Exchange Commission. Okay, these are these guys are supposed to be regulating the uh, you know the investment banks. Okay, uh, Goldman Sachs, uh, uh, Morgan Stanley, that sort of thing. These guys were so underfunded, and not just underfunded, but you had people in charge of it who didn't believe in regulating Wall Street. Yeah, they made the Securities and Exchange Commission a laughing stock, if you will. They really right. did. Well, there's these horrible stories that came out. Once Bush was out, there was an, a study done of, of the SEC as well. These people didn't even have, like, their own functioning photocopiers, okay? So we're talking about the lawyers that are supposed to be protecting us from Wall Street, and they have to go stand in line at Kinko's to do their own photocopying. And they're going up against the best paid, you know, best educated lawyers on planet Earth who represent the, the investment banks, and they're supposed to be defending us. I am more proud of this show and love working on it more than anything else I've ever done in my life. And the members who sign up and stick with the show are the ones who allow me to follow my passion. Members sign up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year to support the show. In return, besides my undying gratitude, they also receive bonus material through the members-only raw feed. This includes audio and video content from the show and bonus material that would otherwise end up on the cutting room floor. All of this is delivered in organized feeds so members can access what they want and ignore what they don't. If you're a regular listener of this show and appreciate the service it provides, please consider becoming a member by visiting the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks a lot. 
A new cereal for the poor stays crunchy in water. It's the Onion Radio News. I'm Doyle Redland. Kellogg's unveiled Poros today, a new cereal served with water instead of milk. It's targeted to the nation's massive below-the-poverty-line demographic. Kellogg's spokesman, Bernard Fitch. When your dirty, naked children try delicious new Poros, we're confident they'll find them waterfully delicious. Kellogg says the cereal also stays crunchy in malt liquor. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio curious thing about this is that you and I and my audience knows that our ancestors believed that capitalism needed to be supervised. But when the conservatives came to power, they began to muzzle the watchdog. Yeah. Well, or, or you know, do away with it altogether, defund it. Look, the, beginning in the 1980s, you, you, President Reagan came to office and came to power, and you remember the kind of rhetoric that he used to use in denouncing the federal workforce. He hated the federal workforce. And this is an article of faith among conservatives. There's something called the pay gap that they used to talk about a lot in Washington, D.C., which is that back in the 50s, 60s, and up into the 1970s, federal workers were paid a comparable amount to, their, to, to what people in the private sector earned. Okay, so if you're a lawyer working for the government, you got about as much as a lawyer working in the private sector. Not as much because government benefits are considered to be uh, much better. Okay, under Reagan, uh, you had this huge gap open up between federal workers and the private sector. I asked around, and I found out a government attorney makes $140,000 a year at the, at, on retirement after he's been there all his life. Uh, in the private sector law firm in Washington, uh, you'd be making 160 starting salary. That's the first year, right out of law school. So, so what's the consequence of this pay gap you described? Oh, do we get inferior government because of it? Uh, absolutely. You, it keeps the best and the brightest out of government service, unless you're really dedicated to a cause. But well, let me go one step further with this, Bill. When I say this is done by design, uh, I'm not exaggerating. And this is one of the, the more surprising things that I found when I was doing the research for The Wrecking Crew, is that there's a whole conservative literature on why you want second-rate people in government, or third-rate. Uh, I found a interview with the head of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce from 1928, where he said, this is this quote, it's, it's mind-boggling to me, but he really said this, the best public servant is the worst one, okay? You want bad people in government. You want to deliberately staff government with, with second-rate people, because if you have good people in government, government will work, and then the public will learn to trust government, and then they'll hand over more power to it. So, and you don't want that, of course, if you're at the Chamber of Commerce. And I thought, when I first read this, that's, that's a crazy idea. That's, I can't believe that sentiment. And then I found it repeated again and again and again throughout the long history of the conservative movement. This is something they, they believe very deeply. It comes out of a definitive way of seeing things, right? Yeah. And that, yes, and we can summarize that very briefly. That's that the market is the, you know, is the universal principle of human civilization, and that government is a kind of uh, interloper, if not a you know, criminal uh, gang. But we saw, with this collapse and this bailout, we saw the failure of that, of and course. yet there's no sense of contrition. What's amazing to me, and you, you wrote this, that, that the very people who brought us this decade of conservative failures, the party of Palin, Beck, Hannity, Abramoff, Rove, DeLay, Crystal, O'Reilly, just might stage a comeback. I think they might. I think there's a very strong chance of that. After only 11 months out of power because yes. of the record, I mean, look, that's the, well, the, stuff we've been, the stuff we've been talking about here today, the stuff in the wrecking crew, that's all forgotten. The financial crisis had that effect of, of that stuff is, is, is now off the, down the memory hole. Do you really think they believe that unfettered capitalism, unregulated markets uh, will deliver uh, an ideal democracy and prosperity for everybody? No, I don't. I think that they, they, they believe that, and to, to some degree, they're sincere in, the, in that belief. But the conservative movement in Washington, I'm not talking about 
grassroots voters in Kansas here. I'm talking about the conservative movement in Washington and the whole constellation of think tanks and lobby shops and uh, not-for-profits and uh, you know and newspapers and uh, fundraisers and all of this stuff. They believe this is an, this is an industry. Okay, this is an industry that that that, that churns out this product. And one of the things I mean, it's one of the things that they're doing now is they excommunicate. George W. Bush, deeply unpopular, so therefore not a true conservative, right? So that way they get to start over fresh. The problem with George W. Bush, the, the reason we're in such a deep hole is that we never went far enough. As Tom DeLay has said in, the, in his newspaper column, and I'm paraphrasing here, the problem with conservatism isn't that it, tried, it was tried and failed, it's that it never really got, it, we never really tried it in the first place. So what we have to do, and I've heard conservatives have said this, uh, what we have to do is go back and deregulate all the way. We have to, you know, slash government, we have to tear that thing down, that's what it's all about. Uh, and w the amazing thing about this, this allows them to represent themselves as as dissidents against the sort of established order yeah. in Washington, even though they ran the established order for, for years and years and years and years and years. But this, here's something else that's bizarre to me, I mean, and, and, and I wonder what you think about it as a historian. I mean, right after the failed terrorist threat of, uh, of, of Christmas, uh, Obama's critics went to work scrubbing uh, what happened when the Bush White House was out to lunch in the weeks and days leading up to 9-11. I mean, you know, there were uh, terrorists sneaking into the country. There were warnings uh, in the, from the intelligence community about an attack on an American city coming. And that's all been flushed down the memory hole. Giuliani goes on the air and says, we didn't have any terrorist attacks when Bush was president. Yeah, uh, and that's another, we also forget the anthrax episode, uh, which happened right after 9-11. Look, uh, I'm not, this is not an argument that I have made, but other people have, that all of these things are need to be added to the list of, of, of government failures. And if you want to talk, why does government fail? You know, there's two answers out there. One is the conservative answer. Government fails because that's the nature of government, to fail. And if you, you want to look a little bit deeper, it's about, you know, why does government fail? Because government has been systematically destroyed. Uh, when we, whether you're talking about the, the, you know, the pay gap and the making, deliberately making government an unattractive career option, uh, or you're talking about outsourcing. This is another conservative strategy for dealing with the state. If you d hate and despise government employees, and you understand them as you know this unbelievable human wickedness, right? What do you do about them? Well, the answer is obvious. And at the same time, you believe in the market. You believe that private industry does everything better. You outsource uh, the federal workforce. Have we reached a stage where you make things bad enough that people despair, and then you manipulate their despair into to your own advantage in the next election? It's a cynical town, Washington, D.C., and uh, the conservative movement tends to be deeply, deeply, deeply cynical about government. Now, it's also, I mean, deeply idealistic about the market. I mean, the market can do no wrong, almost by definition. But government, they regard as a, a criminal gang. I mean, you, there's more, I mean, many, many conservatives have compared, or oh, they always do compare government to criminals all, all the time. Uh, taxation is a form of theft. It's as bad as a mugger in the street saying, give me your money. And America is pretty much unique among the nations in, in the, that our political system, ha half of our political system is basically dedicated to the destruction of the government from within. I don't know any other country where that's the case. But there's plenty of countries where government works really, really well. I mean, even, um, uh, for God's sakes, in India, you know, which we don't think of as, as being an advanced industrial society, their banks didn't all go bust during the latest downturn. Now, why is that? Because their equivalent of the Federal Reserve was not, you know, deregulating, stopping enforcement. They weren't doing any of those things. They were keeping a very tight lid on it. it government can work. It works all the time. You wrote What's the Matter with Kansas. Let me ask you to broaden that canvas and ask with the answer to the question, what's the matter with America that we tolerate all of this? I think a large part of it is that, um, well, it's, it's, the, it's the chronic historical forgetting. You know, we just elected Barack Obama in this, uh, you know, he had 
quite a mandate, uh, you know, the biggest uh, uh, majority of any president since Reagan. And now two a year later, and the public is already turning on him. And that's, that's, that's a part of the problem. But, you know, another part of it is that the conservative argument about uh, government and freedom is very compelling. Uh, when they say that something like, you know, the national, uh, you know, any proposal for a national health program is a violation of our freedom, something like that, Americans don't like to hear that their freedom is being violated. That is a, that is a really, that is a hot button argument. Now, the obvious, look, there's an obvious response that Democrats could make, which is no, this is a way of growing our freedom. This will actually expand human freedom, not, not limit it. Uh, they never say that. Why? So part of the problem with America is the Democratic Party. A huge part of the problem because, <laughs> look, the, the conservatives have for decades now made their, the whole point of their party is to attack government, attack the state, encourage cynicism about government, and then wreck it when they're in charge, right? Democrats never defend the state. They never come out and say, no, no, it's important to have, you know, government. It's important to have a Department of Labor. These are, you know, the, the, having government actually, a good government increases your freedom. It doesn't, it doesn't ruin it. They never fight back against Why? the state. I think they're uh, cross, some of them do. You've got members yeah. of Congress here and there that do. Uh, uh, but uh, by and large, the, the prominent leading Democrats in our society don't do that. Why is that? Because I think that would, uh, that would get them in trouble with their funders. I mean, the power of money is huge in the political system. Uh, you know, despite all the efforts that have been made over the years to get money out of politics, it's still immensely powerful. This is my winter song to you. The storm is coming soon. It rolls in from the sea. My voice will be Brooks is a conservative New York Times columnist who likes to speak for the little people in the red states ignored by the urban media elite. He once criticized Barack Obama for not seeming to be the kind of guy who can go into an Applebee's salad bar and people thinks he fits in naturally there which is typical of the type of populist sociology that Brooks regularly offers, in the sense that Applebee's don't actually have salad bars. It's worth asking, though, what Brooks' populism actually consists of, besides vague suggestions that people in the more rural, whiter parts of America are somehow more authentically American. In a column published by the Times on July 29th, he laid out a political program of sorts, calling deficit reduction the issue that unlocks everything else. He urged Obama to, quote, force the country to accept common sacrifice, close quote. Brooks explained what he meant specifically, quote, establish your credibility and offer to raise taxes on the lower 98 percent, close quote. Now, when you hear people talking about common sacrifice, it's important to remember what's been going on in this country for the last four decades or so. The total output of the U.S. almost doubled, but the typical U.S. family's income rose only 13 percent. Where did the rest of the economic growth go? Mostly to the wealthy families whose average income over the past 45 years has multiplied by a spectacular 27 times. After a long period where the economic gains of the country have flowed almost entirely to a tiny elite, at a time when workers are suffering from 10% unemployment, Brooks thinks regular people aren't sacrificing enough. He should go to the nearest Applebee's and see what the folks at the salad bar think of that. Paul Krugman, quote, it's appalling on every level. Uh, now, uh, he's quoting Brad, uh, Jonathan Zasloff, the economist I just quoted, saying that uh, Geithner 
uh, he might be replacing Geithner, Obama is, if he gets rid of him, with, quote, the rotting corpse of Andrew Mellon. You know who Andrew Mellon was? He was Herbert Hoover's Treasury Secretary, who, according to Hoover, told him to, quote, liquidate the workers, liquidate the farmers, purge the rottenness. Now, that sounds like a Republican, if I ever heard one. Okay? And it, some shades of the lieutenant governor from South Carolina there. The answer to apparently tough economic times is liquidate the poor. Okay? So this is the direction that the uh, country's leading economists think that the Obama administration is going in. So, quoting Andrew Mellon, that's pretty harsh. Okay? Now, one last one from uh, Krugman. It's a betrayal of everything Obama supporters thought they were working for. Just like that, Obama has embraced and validated the Republican worldview. Uh, more specifically, he has embraced the policy ideas of the man he defeated in 2008. A correspondent writes, I feel like an idiot for supporting this guy. You begin to get the sense of how angry people are over this? Look, and I got more here. I, I can go to Simon Johnson. Now, I can, Ezra Klein had a great piece about it. He's not an economist. He's a writer for the uh, Washington Post. Uh, we got Mark Toma, who's normally an understated economist, going ballistic. I can quote you these economists all day long. But I want to quote you someone else, okay? And he is candidate Barack Obama. And I remember when he thought that doing discretionary spending was a terrible idea, or a freeze on discretionary spending. Let's go to that and then, again, come back and tell you why, he's, why this is such a terrible path for him. Let's watch uh, Obama in the debates. How about a spending freeze on uh, everything but defense, veteran affairs, and entitlement? Programs? Spending freeze? I think we ought to seriously consider, with the exceptions of caring for our veterans, national defense, and several other vital issues. Would you go for that? Well, the problem with spending freeze is you're using a hatchet uh, where you need a scalpel. Uh, there are some programs that are very important that are currently underfunded. I want to increase early childhood education. Uh, and the notion that we should freeze that when there may be for example, this Medicare subsidy, I think doesn't make... Oops. Here comes the second debate. It's important for the president to set a tone that says all of us are going to contribute, all of us are going to make sacrifices, and it means that, yes, we may have to cut some spending, although I disagree with Senator McCain about an across-the-board freeze. Oops. That's an example of an unfair burden sharing. That's Oops. using a, a hatchet to cut the federal budget. I want to use a scalpel so that people who need help are getting help, and those of us like myself and Senator McCain who don't need help aren't getting it. That's how we make sure that everybody is willing to make a few sacrifices. You want to see it again? Let's go to the third. And I think it's very commendable, uh, the work she's done on behalf of special needs. Uh, I agree with that, John. I, I do want to just point out that uh, autism, for example, or other special needs uh, will require some additional funding if we're going to get serious uh, in terms of research. That is something that every family that uh, advocates on behalf of disabled children talk about. And if we have a across-the-board spending freeze, we're not going to be able to do it. That's an example of, I think, the kind of uh, the use of the scalpel that we want to make sure that we're funding some of those programs. Well, uh, look, I, I think that we do have a disagreement about uh, across-the-board spending freeze. It, it sounds good. It's proposed periodically. It doesn't happen, and in fact, an across-the-board spending freeze uh, is a hatchet, uh, and we do need a scalpel Oops. because there's some programs that don't work at all. There's some programs that are underfunded, uh, and I want to make sure that we are focused on those programs that work. Would you go for that? Well, the problem with a spending freeze is you're using a hatchet uh, where you need a scalpel. Uh, no, Moss. No, Moss. I'm calling. Board we board can go on all day long with Obama busting himself up, okay? I mean, is it, is it a hatchet or a scalpel? I can't tell. Before it appeared that it was a hatchet, now all of a sudden it's a scalpel, right? Because now all of a sudden Obama's in favor of McCain's proposal. And guess what McCain says today? Of course, he says, not enough. <laughs> of course, of course! If you keep giving them to the queen, they're going to ask for the king. You think they're going to be satisfied with that? Of course they're not satisfied. And now, to be fair to Obama, look, this has some flexibility. So it's a spending cap overall, right? But he can move funding around. So now he would come back and say, look, in those debates, I said, I want to be able to give money to some places and not to others. And he's going to come turn around and say, well, look, look, I got a freezing spending cap, but, but at least I can move it within departments. But if he increases the department, uh, one department, he's got to decrease another department. Understand that, okay? Now, 
He also has a cute little provision in there that's an emergency provision. Well, you know, if we really need something in an emergency, then we can allocate funds for that, right? You know what that's going to be abused for? Because part of this that's being frozen, and the part that I like, is the agricultural subsidies, those corn subsidies that are killing us, that are, you know, have caused untold problems for the United States government and society overall, right? You think they're going to freeze those? They're not going to freeze those. Here, you can quote me on it today, okay? We'll come back and tell you, oh, well, look at that. It turns out there was an emergency, and the one thing that they decided to e increase the spending on is the farm subsidies. Why? Because that's a political uh, non-starter. They're not going to work. You think all those farm senators and congressmen and senators are going to let you get away with that? You think big agriculture is going to let you get away with that? Hell no. Now, that means if you increase those, well, you've got to decrease the services you're giving to the poor even more. So if you didn't like this proposal now, Wait till you see its execution. Okay. Now, look, every department these days is getting a 10% increase every year. Now, that's a lot, okay, lately. Now, that's not the standard thing throughout time and memorial, okay? But that was the increase last year, for example, right? Now, do I think 10% is the right number? Uh, to me, that seems high, to be honest with you. So if he came and said, look, I'm going to do a 5% increase here, but I'm going to do a 15% decrease here, and here's the reasons behind it. Well, I'm definitely listening to that, because I do believe in reducing the deficit. But if you come to me with a Republican gimmick that everybody recognizes to be a gimmick, and at the worst possible time, and you do it only to bow your head to the Republicans, well, then I'm not on board for that. That's crazy. And if you really wanted to control the deficit, you know what you'd go after? Defense spending. Are you kidding? Do you know that defense spending is larger than all discretionary spending combined. There's non-discretionary spending, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, etc., right? But if you take all the other discretionary spending, defense spending is larger. So why don't you include defense spending? Oh, no, 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 but the Republicans will say, I'm soft on defense, I can't do it, I can't do it. Look, if you're not cutting defense spending, which is loaded with pork, which is loaded with waste, and you're not going to raise taxes on the richest Americans who already benefited from this economy, well, then you're not really serious about cutting the deficit. You're being, playing political games. And that's why I say a hopeless politician. Now, i got to give, I, I have so much more on this, I want to come back to it a little later. I, just a quick note of credit here to Senator Ben Cardin, which I did not expect. Democratic Senator from Maryland says, hey, you know what, uh, if he wants to get serious, he should cut defense spending. Now, not a lot of times that a Democrat will say that because they'll be scared to death that the Republicans will beat him up over it, right? He's like, you know where the biggest waste is, is defense spending. If he's going to leave that alone, that this is, this is a nonsense political trick. Score one for Senator Cardin from Maryland. Nicely done. That's exactly right. Okay? So if, if Obama has actual political courage, which at this point I honestly suspect he does not, which is if, that's the most devastating part. Not the policy implications today, but that implication, the political implication that he's just never going to do the right thing. Never going to have the courage to do it. Never going to have the courage to take them on. Well, then, you know, it, it, I'll tell you one thing. I'll know it when I see it. It's kind of like porn, okay? When he has the political courage, he says, oh, yeah, I'm going to cut the hell out of defense spending because I think it's garbage, okay? Well, okay, then I'm open. Hey, when he says, I'm going to come over, come after the rich, I'm not going to tax the middle class uh, their health care plans. I'm going to tax the rich uh, to uh, pay for health care. Okay, now we're having a conversation. Look, there's bounds of reason to that. But he hasn't even begun to go in that direction, if you ask. You can now support this podcast as easily as by shopping online. The next time you need to make a purchase of just about anything, simply visit bestofleft.com and use our Amazon.com search box to find what you're looking for. The search box is located right on the side of the website. You can't miss it. When you make your purchase, we get a little commission. It's just another effortless, completely free way for you to help keep the show going strong. Thanks for your support. Washington, D.C. in the matter of credit card reform. It's the subject of our new series on financial responsibility called Make It Rain.
That didn't feel good. <laughs> All right. To understand what the new credit card regulations will do, first we've got to see how credit cards actually work. So let's say uh, you'd like a TV. You head down to some generic appliance store there, and yeah, they've got a very reasonable 26-inch LCD for, let's say, 289 It's playing an episode of Dora. It's very clear. It'll get the job done. <laughs> But it happens to be sitting next to a 62-inch HD plasma screen blaring a Blu-ray disc of Gladiator with full Dolby reach-around technology. <laughs> the thing is mint! So your first question is, is, is that one Energy Star qualified? <laughs> Second, of course, is how does a gentleman living in his parents' basement with only part-time employment justify spending $3,000 on this piece of technology? Well, that's the beauty of it. You don't have to. You've got a credit card. Remember spring break? Anyway, it's a lot of money, but your minimum payment's only gonna be $90 a month. You can handle it. You'll pay it off over a couple of years, except you're forgetting about the 14% interest rate, which means you'll actually pay it off in, this is true, 11 years, unless you decide in those 11 years to buy something else. The bank changes your bill due date without warning you, which they can do, so you'll incur late fees and a penalty rate hike up to 30% interest, or maybe they just give you a rate hike up to 30% for no reason at all. Why? F*** you, that's why. <laughs> they can do that. Now let's say your payment pays off. Let's say this purchase pays off. Let's say you get this 62-inch plasma screen and you go pro at Wii Sports. <laughs> and with your sponsorship money, you crawl out from under your credit burden, finally freeing yourself. The credit card company's response to that would be to raise your credit limit, daring you to fly higher. <laughs> Saying to you, well, for every $5,000 you put on your credit card, you'll rack up points towards that gyroscopic, sharper image pen you've had your eye on. <laughs> Supplies are limited. Points not valid in continental U.S. Pen may be a pencil. All right. <laughs> well, no more. I'm happy to say that as of yesterday, that scenario is no longer possible thanks to the Credit Card Accountability, Responsibility, and Disclosure Act. Banks generally can no longer raise interest rates on your existing balance. They must give you 45 days notice before raising the interest rate on anything you buy going forward. By law, your bank must now spell out how long it'll take you to pay off your card. See? <laughs> All we needed was the information. <laughs> like when they put up the calorie charts at McDonald's and you knew exactly how many calories were in the Big Mac and large fries that you continue to eat no matter what. <laughs> so that's it. From now on, it's going to be on the up and up. That is, wait. Unless, unless the banks are run by sentient beings who saw this coming. Congress gave the banks nine months to comply with these rules, and they used that time to raise interest rates almost across the board. And look for all kinds of new fees as banks try to make up for billions in lost income, even fees if you don't use your card enough. Hey, what the, hey, what? <laughs> A fee for not using your credit card. Let me see if I can reenact the meeting where they came up with that. Uh, well, it's not like we can charge people for not buying things. What? Why is everyone kissing me? What? Whoa, no! Let go of my penis! Whoa! If I had a radio for every time you love me so, I wouldn't have a radio at all. Now I sit and waste my time My room is quiet as a mime And wait for someone glamorous to call Barack Obama's out to lunch on bank bonuses. He just said he doesn't begrudge the $17 million bonus that the CEO of J.P. Morgan awarded himself or the $9 million that the CEO of Goldman Sachs is raking in. Newsflash for Obama. Just about everybody else in America does begrudge them these bonuses, and why not? These CEOs would either be out of a job entirely or their stock would be almost worthless were it not for the massive injection of our tax dollars, which revived them when they were comatose. 
And what did we get in return? Did these CEOs place a moratorium on their foreclosures or freeze the interest rates or reduce the principal on loans they swindled people into? No, they didn't do anything to help consumers. They just helped themselves, and Obama let them take one helping after another. Obama said their success and wealth are part of the free market system. Hogwash. These obscene bonuses derive from corporate welfare at its worst. And when Obama declared, I know both those guys, they are very savvy businessmen, he was making a shameful confession. He's been hanging around with the bankers so long, he started to think just like them and justify their greed just like them. credit industry afloat? Well, our own Wyatt Cenac looks at how one company, Bank of America, is handling the new financial realities. Times are tough for Bank of America. It's one thing to fend off Congress, but now they're being attacked on YouTube by their own cardholders. Bank of America jacked up my interest rate on the credit card to a whopping 30%. changed my due date. Like they are lying, thieving bastards. Amidst this downpour of negative internet videos, one from Jackie Ramos was particularly damning. I was told to deny refunding as many late and over-the-limit fees as I could. And by the way, customer assistance is a euphemism for the collections department. That's right. Ramos worked for Bank of America. They were under attack from within. So I stopped denying people. I helped people get on programs that didn't necessarily qualify, but definitely needed the help. Luckily, Ramos was found and fired, but she shamelessly kept her video online. I still have a lot of respect for him. Out of all the interviews I've ever had in my life, I will never forget the one that I had with him. He, he told me- How dare you? Just piling on to Bank of America, you and everybody else. Haven't they had it hard enough? I'm proud of what I did. I felt like I did the right thing. It was definitely hard to charge that $15 fee knowing that they also got charged a $39 over the limit fee, a $39 late fee. I felt that $15 fee was kind of kicking them while they, while they were down. So that $15 convenience fee, can I pay for that with a credit card? The $15 fee gets added onto the balance of the card. Oh, wow. So it gets interest collected on it too? Yes. You know, there was even a joke. Upstairs, they gave you the credit, and downstairs, we collected on it. <laughs> it's hilarious. Oh, none of us really thought it was funny. <laughs> it's funny, because poor people don't deserve credit in the first place. I don't think anyone disputes and that. And then it's a cycle that just, it's like a snake eating its own tail. Maybe it went over your head a little bit, but it's a, that's a good... That's a good joke. It seems like Jackie has sympathy for everyone but Bank of America. I dealt with people who lost their jobs, people who had excessive medical bills. I even dealt, dealt with people who, who had sick children. But Jackie, Bank of America has a sick kid too, all right? This is Meryl. She was adopted by Bank of America last year for $55 billion. And it's going to take billions more to keep Merrill execs in the comfort they've grown accustomed to. Really, I want you to look in little Merrill's face there and tell me, what is Merrill going to say when Bank of America can't afford to, to take on the rest of that negative equity? If they would have thought about what they were doing before they mortgaged themselves to the hilt, then they wouldn't have anything to worry about. You don't care, do you? I don't. Bank of America refused to speak with us, so I sat down with loan specialist Louis Ferrante. He worries that Bank of America is giving all lenders a bad name. Predatory lenders are, are disgrace, you know, disgraceful people. They're constantly harassing you. They call your house. They call my cell phone. You just keep putting penalties on top of penalties, and you can't go anywhere anymore because your credit's ruined. You came to us to straighten out your mortgage. So you understand kind of what Bank of America is going through with their credit card customers. Yeah, absolutely. I was a loan shark. 
for the mafia, for the mob. Five minutes after you asked me for money, I had it in the brown paper bag. You set a rate of interest. It never went up a nickel. So there's no hidden no fees. No hidden with fees. You. It is what, what it is. What about penalty fees? Like penalties. with a credit card, if, if you're three, if you're three months behind, I love how credit card it goes up to thirty percent. You can't strangle somebody with all these hidden costs and say, "Listen, pay it or else we're going to break your legs." Yeah. Our word was our word in the mob. No fine print. No bull. And thanks to the new regulations, Bank of America now has the same high standards as the mafia. If you were sick, if your wife was sick, we didn't say, you pay me. With us, whoever owes money in Brooklyn 30 years ago might still owe money today, but they're in the same house. The mob never threw them out. The guy might have suffered a broken bone. He might have fell down a flight of stairs by accident. By accident. By accident. Things happen. You know, you might bend back some guy's fingers or even break a knuckle or two, but you ain't taking his house. Is it okay that I'm terrified of you? I don't see a reason why. As for Jackie Ramos, she refuses to take down her video. For someone who just lost her job, one would think she would have more compassion for her former employer's situation. $15 here. $39 there, $45 billion in TARP fees. These guys are just scraping whatever they can to get by. Knowing that so many of Americans are struggling and you're still going to charge them 30% interest and high fees on their account, how are they ever supposed to claw themselves out of debt? Um, faking their own deaths. That's one way. We can actually verify whether or not you died. Really? Yes. I mean, in a weird way, you kind of got to tip your hats to them. They're smart. They're dickholes, but they're smart. Thanks for listening, everyone. So I've been doing this podcast for uh, just a little bit more than four years, and it has been uh, an incredibly interesting ride. Obviously, it just started out as a hobby and stayed that way for a, a very, very long time. Uh, then about eight or nine months ago, I began to make the effort to turn it into nothing more than a part-time job. Then in the middle of last month, it actually became a full-time job. And maybe this month or next month, it stands to become a, a, a flat-out dream come true. So, you know, I, I said I've been doing this show for a little more than four years, but for at least six years, maybe more, I've had the dream to have some kind of a job. I didn't have any idea what kind, just some sort of work that gave me some sort of income that allowed me to survive that was not dependent on me being anchored to a specific location. And so, you know, my first thoughts along these lines was like, being a travel writer or a photographer of some sort, you know, anything, anything that let me stay on the road and, and get paid any amount of money to that, that I could live off of. And so this podcast being what it is, I'm sure you can imagine uh, it's, it's the sort of thing I can do basically anywhere. I, if I have an internet connection, I can more or less put this show together. So over the next Several weeks and months, uh, more details uh, about this will be coming out as details come into existence, literally. <laughs> um, and uh, But I, I just kind of wanted to take a moment and let you guys know that, you know, as I say all the time, this show literally is supported uh, almost entirely, 90, 95% supported by members, uh, members and donors. You know, members sign up to to do a recurring donation either every month or every year. And then there are others who just uh, do one-time donations as well. So every little bit helps. And so I just wanted to kind of let you guys know, uh, you know, members and donors of the show not only support the production of the show, not only support my ability to, you know, live and, and do this and have this be my job, but really at this point, it's, it's kind of supporting a, a dream come true. So if you're a longtime listener, you know sometimes I get absolutely gushy about uh, how much I appreciate the support of the listeners, but it's it's um, it's going to start reaching like an absurd level soon because uh, the, the the members who support the show 
are, are allowing me to kind of follow the stream that I've had for longer than podcasting has been in existence. You know, I, I had no idea how I'd ever get to this point, um, but it feels like I'm getting there. So it's time now, of course, to thank a couple of members. Uh, first of all, I want to thank Henry K., who signed up for a, a full year membership back on November 29th. And then finally, because it's it's altogether suitable, I'm, I'm sitting here, you know, I moved out of D.C. I'm sitting in Nashville, Tennessee um, at my family's home where I'm taking care of a few things, uh, dropping off a bunch of my stuff before I... Uh, move on elsewhere and, and doing some some chores along the way it's it's long past time to fix a, a minor oversight from before and uh, and so I want to thank Linda T my mother who became a member way back on July 11th uh, she was the one of the first 20 people to sign up for membership and uh, and signed up above and beyond the uh, the minimum you know membership level. So huge thanks to her for signing up for the membership and, of course, always having a, a, an open door policy so I could come and, and crash here for a few weeks while I prep for the trip. So that's just about it for today. Uh, please head over to Podcast Alley or Podcast Alley via my website, bestoftheleft.com. It is a new month and it's great to be at the top 10 at Podcast Alley. It, it really does help the show. It helps new people find the show it takes you 30 seconds to cast your vote each month and so it's, it's great for for those of you just get in the habit every month take 30 seconds and and know that you're supporting the show by uh, by getting best of the left in the top 10 uh, and on the homepage at podcastalley.com so that'll really be it for today. Please check out all the ways to support the show in the big support box at bestoftheleft.com. You can uh, stay in touch with the show between episodes on Twitter and Facebook. Links to all of the sources and all the music used in the show is always in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from nowhere near the Beltway of Washington, D.C. or the conventional wisdom contained within, my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you sometimes two, sometimes three times a week, at least ten times a month. Thanks entirely to the members and donors from bestoftheleft.com. Thought finds her black and white. So took apart a picture that wasn't right. Bitch burning on a shining sheet. The only maker that you want to meet. A dying man in a living room. The shadow bases the floor.